Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. Uh, today, we've got Dwayne Fields. I'm excited about this one because, Dwayne, let's, we met this January, of all places, uh, Antarctica. Yeah. I was about to say Jamaica just because I had left you. I'd read your, your, your life story. But um, yeah. so Antarctica camp, uh, God damn it, uh, Union Glacier Camp. We're sitting in the chow hall and this white dude and this black dude walk in and they're dressed like they're, they're part of uh, uh, Shackleton's exploration team. So you're <laughs> talking like gear from the, uh, the early 1900s um, and – and in Antarctica, everyone's in like Arcteryx or outdoor research or Patagonia gear, like outfitted to the hilt. And these two guys look like they're from a different age. And the other thing too, is I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I've seen these two dudes. I'm like, I swear to God, they, they're, they're, they're with like Nat Geo or, or exploration shows. And it turned out to be true. And actually Dwayne, a testament to your personality. You came up to us first and you're like, Hey man, uh, Hey guys, I'm Dwayne. Who are you guys? Where are you from? And you just started asking questions. And even though we knew uh, that you, you had some fame behind you, you were genuine. You were a nice man. And uh, you gave us a lot of attention, even though we probably didn't deserve it, man. And I couldn't have thanked you uh, for that enough. But um, yeah, how, how did the rest of the trip in Antarctica go for you guys? Well, first of all, Mike, stop being so, I don't know, don't be so humble. The truth is you guys were looking pretty cool. Like of all the people there, like you said, Arcteryx and everything else, you get a group of guys who clearly are passionate about something. And the truth is, when I first looked at you, I didn't know what it was you were passionate about. I just, there was just an air of, I don't know, confidence and an air of capability about all of you. And I thought to myself, right, they clearly um, are not here to, I don't know, study the albedo of snow. So, you know what I mean? There's definitely something interesting there, but yeah. I came over to you because I don't know, a spirit told me to. Something said, go and talk to these guys because they're doing something pretty cool. And it turns out you were, you were there raising money, raising awareness for um, ex and, and ex servicemen. And I think, bro, there are people out there who fight so I could sit on this podcast today. There are people out there who fight so I could, I don't know, go on a holiday, go kayaking, go surfing whenever I want. And you're one of those guys and the guys out there with you are those guys as well. So I think, as, as the most minimalistic show of appreciation that I could do is go and find out what you were up to. And I didn't know at the time, but yeah, um, it was, it was, it was an interesting conversation, wasn't it? I've completely forgotten what your first question was, by the way, but no, honestly, Antarctica was, was something else. And if you asked, um, if your question was, how did I find it? Is that, is that what your question was? No, no, no. no. Well, let me say this. There were, it was such a strange and eclectic group of personalities. Oh, yeah. it, like we loved Antarctica. It was fun. It was, it was definitely fun, man. A lot of yeah, stories. It was. Um, but, you, was know, awesome. so you and Ben. Yeah. Oh dude. Insane. Insane. That group that we, we had so much fun. We walked away with so many friendships that was worth it alone. The jumps were pretty cool, but so you and Ben were doing a reenactment of basically the equipment that Shackleton or that era uh, utilized, man. Uh, yeah, dude, exactly. give, give me a little we context. Were, we were, I mean, was it freaking miserable? Oh, gosh. There were times where it was absolutely unbearable. If you imagine, like you said, we use modern kits. So we've got um, Gore-Tex and we've got layered gear and we've got um, 
thermo thermo rests to sleep on. We've got um, we, we've got microfibers. We've you, you know all these kind of merino wool gear, the best stuff available. And I've used that stuff. Now to get rid of something that you know and trust and work with to put on, I don't know, some boiled wool outers and some gabardine. Man, it just it was crazy. But the the, the nuttiest thing was. I was surprised at how well it worked, considering, you know, this stuff is a hundred and twenty-year-old technology. Gabardine was invented at the turn of the century of the of the of the twentieth century, um, so it it worked well enough to a certain point, and then it just got absolutely miserable. It just stopped working. The cold got into you at nights when we're sleeping in those um, the, those reindeer skin sleeping bags. After about minus twenty, minus fifteen, thereabouts. It just, it, it's not helping you anymore. It stops helping you. You're putting on every single layer you've got. But interestingly, I think it gives me a better platform to talk about adventuring and exploration now because I've experienced what those mm -hmm. guys would have experienced. I've always been grateful to them because they paved the way for people like me, people like Ben and everyone else who came in the world of exploration. And to be able to step back into, you know, the same kind of circumstances, wearing the same gear as they wore, it just gives me something more, an extra edge and something else I can talk about when I'm talking to people about these things and say, oh, well, they had it hard back then. I can say, I know because I did it exactly how they did it. I know because I wore the wooden skis and I pulled the wooden pulp with the massive crates on it. And because I pulled using, I don't know, twined ropes and everything else. So, but you guys were also, remind me, you weren't you weren't eating dry, dry you know dry freezed mountain houses. You were eating what they yeah. ate as well, right? <laughs> yeah, we were eating some good stuff, man. It's called pemmican. I say it was good stuff because if I don't think of it fondly, it's gonna make me upset. Just man, it, it pemmican isn't the greatest tasting thing for anyone who's ever been to I don't know a place like Svelbard. You can still get it pretty readily available, but. Back then, it's basically boiled beef, boiled down till there's absolutely nothing in it. Um, and then the fats are boiled and boiled and boiled, so it congeals, it's hard. When it's cold, it's hard, so it's easy to carry, easy to store, and it will, it will keep for, for months and months and months. And what they do is they tend to boil in some berries or some oats or something else in there to make it. Basically, it's, it's a block of, of, <laughs> of nutrition. It's meant to be, it's a block of energy. Now, it didn't taste good, is what I'm going to say. At times, we were eating this stuff, and it was just like oil. It was like eating oil. So what we do, put butter in it to try and make it taste better. We put some seasoning in there, some salt, some pepper, some, I don't know, onion powder. And honestly, man, didn't make it taste any better. <laughs> of course, they didn't, have, they didn't have ration packs and dehydrated meals back then, so they had to carry kilos and kilos of this stuff. So, so let me ask you this. Do you think it's a safe yeah. statement to say that generation by nature of their environment <laughs> were harder than, than our generation? Because my answer is yes to that, but I, I, I'd be interested yeah. in yours. Bro, you got to remember, look, these guys were going into the absolute unknown. They called it um, terra incognita, the land unknown. They were going into a place where they didn't have the luxury of having maps or having satellite imagery or having great metadata uh, in terms of met, met, met office data sorry they were going into a place where they didn't know if it was a hundred miles or a hundred 
or, or, or two or three or 400 miles. So the mental strength it takes to go somewhere and take one step after the other, not knowing how long it's going to take you to get there, to carry food and not be certain that it's enough, to leave your loved one behind and not be certain of return. I mean, think back to Shackleton's ad. I know it's. I know. I know. There's arguments now that it was. Um, it was a fake ad, and it's just a. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a kind of prank. But um, you know, return uncertain, death possibility, all that kind of stuff. Like this is what they were going into mentally. You have to be in a very tough place to head off in a direction, and not sh not be sure you're coming back, or at least not be sure you can get help when you need it. In the last 50, 60 years, we can just radio in for help. We can radio and bed down in a couple of hours, someone will come get us, or maybe a few days at most. Back then, it wasn't that. You were on these expeditions for months and months at a time. You were out there for a minimum of six months. So, you know, you were doing things that we wouldn't dream of doing, Mike. These guys were eating their ponies and eating their dogs. This is what it was. This is, this is the reality of their expeditions. They were doing things and going places that we didn't, that we just didn't know what to expect. Um, were they tougher? Just to go back to your, your your final question, yeah, man, no doubt. I think those guys <laughs> look. They'd have frostbitten toes and just be like, yeah, just mm. wrap it up and put put my boot back on. Let's keep going. Nowadays, you get frost nipping, you start asking to to, to evac me. Oh, it's, it's like you don't have a choice. But you know, to layer it, dude, is we assume they flew from London. To Puta Arenas, got on another 757, flew to Antarctica, and then you know took their dogs and their and their sleds. No, they they had to endure what a four week transit from yeah. Great Britain yep. to South Africa. I'm sorry, South America, and then and then brave Drake's Passage, which, which if people don't know about Drake's Passage, it's the most treacherous set of uh, stretch of sea, up to 40 uh, foot seas. Yep. I think 20,000 sailors have been killed. Over 800 yeah. uh, boats lost, to our knowledge. So you had to brave that to even get to Antarctica and then start. So you're not exactly yeah. starting from 100% energy and uh, no. sleep and rest. No. No. You're starting from a position where you're probably already, your, your body's nutrient deficient already, vitamin C deficiency already. Like all these things are happening to you already. You've already put in the work to get there. So it's not, you're, like you said, you're not going there rested. You're going there battling the conditions long before you ever see Antarctica. The Drake Passage now is, is like you said, it's probably the most miserable stretch of water anywhere in the ocean. And for any wondering, anyone wondering, it goes down the tip of South America and you get some horrible current, currents there. Uh, you get the, the, the Antarctic winds start there as well. And it's a massive, even nowadays, it's a two-day stretch. It's a two-day crossing from there to the peninsula of Antarctica. So it... It's absolutely miserable. And that's with powered vessels now and the comforts of, I don't know, ocean liners. Back then, it was an open top boat, wood. It was, you know, it wasn't steam. It wasn't coal driven. It was still wind powered for the most part. The odd ship had, had you know, coal engines. But, bro, it was it was bad. It was bad. If Every time you see those pictures of men stood there looking sunburnt and weather beaten, mm. And, you know, they leave looking like a man. They come back looking like a mummy. It, it, this is what does it to them. That long journey down there and then be expected to overwinter or spend some of your time there at, at one of the huts and then set out on this thousand plus mile journey.
It's insane, man. And that's, you know, when I read those books, it's my hat's off to him, but Dwayne Fields, let's talk about your story, man. Cause I, I love this one born in Jamaica. Yes. Family moved to the UK, uh, to, to, to Great Britain. Wait, 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 hold on. And and we told you, cause you told us your life story. You, you grew up in a part of the inner city called, was it Hackney or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bro, your memory is good. Yeah, yeah. What? Because you said we're like, oh, we'd love to come. You're like, hey, you guys got to come out and visit. And we're like, yeah, we'd love to go see where you grew up. And you're like, yeah, uh, you guys are tough, but I'm not taking you there. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's all I remember. I'm like, oh, okay. No, you'd be all right. Do you know what it is? You know, you know. Sometimes you want to show people um, where you grew up because you're proud of certain parts mm-hmm. of it. There's very few places in. So Hackney's a beautiful place in terms of you can go there. And if you throw a stone in any direction, you can hit someone from pretty much anywhere in the world. That's the best thing about happening, if you ask me. Love Everything it. else is is pretty much downhill. In in my opinion, love the people in terms of the place. Um, it's it's not my favorite place in the world, but I love the people there and I love the diversity. I love the fact that they, you know, you can meet a person from every single corner of the planet there, um, which which I think awesome. to a degree makes a place. But you're welcome to come anytime you're ready, man. Give me a shout. Well, dude, we, we're trying to, I don't want to name the name of the company, but we're trying to jump into the highlands and oh, yeah. do a vehicle, uh, vehicle overland, a uh, little off-roading for like three to four days. Oh, and, and dude, I, I took liberties with, with your name. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll try to get Dwayne Fields on the trip as well. If, uh, yeah. if we do that, we'll jump you in, man. But, um, awesome. talk to me about your upgrading. Cause, yeah. cause I, I remember you saying, Hey, it wasn't, and, and you didn't, you, you don't dramatize. That's, that's not who you are. No. You're like, yeah, it was, it was, it was rough at times. And I remember you saying something about, uh, you know, you'd had a gun pointed at you that malfunctioned. Yeah. Um, and that um, was a wake up call for you. Do you know, so uh, you're right. I don't need to dramatize it because it just, it, as far as I'm concerned, it, it's, it is what it was. I didn't have it easy. Let's be honest. Um, but at the same time, there's lots of people out there that didn't have it easy. In my case now, I, I have two stab wounds on my body, one in my lower stomach, one just, just hair in my shoulder. Um, what age? That, what age did that happen at? That happened, I think that was about 19 or so that this happened, the one hair and the one in my stomach and a small scratch in my back as well from another blade that didn't quite get, get me. Um, and the gun incident happened a, a couple of years later. And this, I think this was the biggest catalyst to me changing and opting to get out of that kind of um, environment because I was never the kind of person to carry a knife or to carry a gun. That was just never me. I never did it. Um, certainly not in, in malice to anyone. But if you, I want to take you back just a minute. I was born in Jamaica, like you said. And you know, when you're mm-hmm. born somewhere, especially when you're born in, in rural Jamaica, like I was, you grow up thinking a certain way. Uh, at age six, seven, just before I turned seven, I, I grew up thinking the world is all like this place, like the place I grew up in, rural Jamaica, woodlands, trees, forests, fields everywhere. I moved to London to live with my mom. Now, bear in mind, this is a mom who I've met a couple of times since, you know, being born. We didn't grow up together. It just didn't work. And um, when I first got to London, I realized how different the world was. And I'll tell you the moment I realized the world was different. I remember reaching out for a fruit and my mom tapping the back of my hand and saying, I don't have money for that. Bear in mind where I came from, fruits grow on trees. If you want a fruit, you just pick it and that's it. You're good to go. And um, that's when I realized, whoa, this is different. I went to school and I couldn't make friends because, you know, Mike, when you go to school, the first thing a kid next to you says is, Mike, 
who's your favorite TV character or who's your favorite superhero? And, you know, you've got one chance to get it right. In my case, I didn't have a TV. I didn't have comic books. I didn't have even electricity running in my house in Jamaica. It was just a breeze block building and that was it. So I couldn't, I couldn't share that dialogue. I couldn't, you know, have conversations about superheroes and that made, made it hard for me to make friends. And equally, I couldn't, I didn't know how things in the UK worked because weirdly in school in Jamaica, you had a bun and you might have some cheese and you'd have like a little plastic bag of milk. That's what we had. When I walked into the lunchroom here in the UK, I was seeing cake and I was seeing custard and I was seeing apple pies and I was seeing cheeseburgers and chips and all these foreign foods to me. So everything was new. Everything made me anxious. I didn't know what choice was the right one. And of course, at lunch times, I got it wrong from time to time. So there was that level of anxiety and I just didn't fit in. I, did, I just felt like I didn't fit in. My accent was different. I looked around the, the class. Every kid had friends and every kid had toys and every kid knew how to read properly. And I just struggled with everything. And um, I carried on. I, I learned quite early on, Mike, that if you just smile and say yes, it would get you through most things. And I think I carried on that pattern of behavior all through my early years. And I just said yes to nonsense, even things that I knew I didn't want to do. For example, we'd be sitting on the benches for four hours. Now, I have a creative mind when it comes to tearing one thing apart and building something else. But that creative mind doesn't get you friends. And I, and I, I didn't want to be alone. I didn't want to be. Nobody wants to be isolated. I didn't want to be alone. I, I wanted to have friends. I wanted to be able to laugh and play the games they played. So anyway, I carried on that pattern of smile and just say yes and go along with the crowd all through my teens to the point where, you know, I've told you about the stabbing. Um, yeah. But it goes a bit further. I carried on that same pattern of behavior of yes, 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 yes. Laugh at this, laugh at jokes that aren't even funny. And like I said, it was never about fear of anyone. It was just about fear of being isolated or fear of being alone or fear of being the outsider. And um, it all came to head one night when, you know, I secretly built a moped in the shed. I was indulging my own creativity. I built this moped out, scratching the shed, bought some parts, went to a scrapyard, got some other parts. And I rode this, I rode this moped. And, you know, sure enough, I turned left, the wheel went right. I went down the middle, crashed, scraped off my skin, dragged it back home, rebuilt it. This time I sent my younger brother out to test ride it. And sure enough, it works perfectly. And equally sure enough, some boys see this moped, they pushed my brother off of it and they stole it. And um, this is where it just, I, 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 I lost my mind, man. I, when he, when I see my younger brother coming back and he's crying, Mike, yeah. Um, yeah. I remember thinking that's it. I've had enough now. Um, I've had enough of the status quo. I've had enough of people thinking they can do what they want when they want with other people's stuff. I've had enough. And I remember I walked onto this estate. So for anyone who doesn't, who's listening, who doesn't know what an estate is, um, it's like, a, a, a like blocks, you've got different blocks um, or different areas um, with big building blocks on it. And generally what you find is young people of my age group in that at that time, we wouldn't go to somebody else's estate uh, unless you were going there for a specific reason and you knew who you were going to. Generally, it's just, it'll get you in trouble. But anyway, it's, it's nighttime. I walk onto this estate and you know when someone steals something in an area, you know generally where they're going to bring it to. So anyway, I, I walk onto this estate, walk around the back towards where these guys are. And I feel stupid 
and I felt stupid after I'd done it. But at the time, I was so angry. I was blinded, man. Mm -hmm. I, it was stupid to walk onto the estate because I didn't belong there. Um, guaranteed I was going to be outnumbered. Guaranteed they'd be armed with knives or some implement. Um, guaranteed if I was unlucky, I'd be beaten up or worse. But I didn't mm -hmm. think about that at the time. I just said, enough's enough. Whatever, come what may, I'm going to get my bike back. And I remember bringing, walking down towards this estate, walking onto the estate, walking around the back. And my brother was right there. And sure enough, there's eight or nine boys tearing this bike apart. And I, I, I saw red, man. I saw red and I walked over and I grabbed hold of the bike in the middle of these guys. And I said, I'm taking my bike. Um, luckily, everyone kind of looked at me and just said, I'll take it. It's, you know, it's crap anyway. We don't want it. And at that point, I won. I walked onto their estate. I was in their area and they let me take my bike and go. And, you know, I looked over to the side and this is where I think I was peak stupid. There was one guy with a plastic panel about 10 inches by two inches. Didn't mean a thing. I could have walked off and got another one for about a pound, maybe two. But I, I wanted it because it was mine. And I walked over and I snatched it out of his hand. And um, I remember as I turned to walk away, he pushed me. And again, I keep using the word stupid because I could have walked away at any point. But I, I don't know why I turned around and I pushed this guy back. Anyway, um, as he stumbled backwards, I think I, I, you know, I just walked off towards the bike, picking up the bits and pieces, trying to hurry, getting my brother to pick up the bits that he could. And um, all the while they're making their comments off to the side, but we're, we're just focused on getting the bike. And within about a minute or two, this guy comes back and he, he walks to about three, four meters away from me, about 12 feet, 13 feet. And he starts to raise his hand up. And in his hand, I can see a handgun. And at this point, I push my brother to the side and I stand up, I hold my hands up and I'm like, bro, you know, it doesn't need to go that far. And before I could finish the sentence, um, I, I hear a click and, you know, he cocked it back and he points it at me and he pulls the trigger again. And it's, I don't, I don't know if you have ever experienced this. Maybe it's my nerves, maybe whatever it was, but, um, I remember this guy, I, I remember just looking at the gun and the sound of the gun made me feel like I'd been shot. It made me feel like there was a bullet rushing. It, it, it sounds really stupid to say it, but um, when you're staring, when I was staring at it is what I'm going to say. Any sound sounds like a bullet coming towards me. It, I, I don't know how to explain it other than that. And I remember just, you know, looking at my brother, pushing him to the side and just doing that. And when he cocked it back for the first, second time and pulled the trigger, I saw a bullet come out the side. I was like, damn. And I was holding my stomach thinking, that's it, I've, I've been shot now. And while he was wrestling with the gun, trying to do it a third time, some of the guys kind of grabbed him and said, ah, oh, it's not worth it, let's walk off. And they took him off. And at this point, I grabbed my stuff, got my brother and we just left. And I remember stopping, it's about a 10 minute walk from there to my house. I remember stopping maybe three or four times and just lifting my shirt and checking because I can feel I, it's not pain, but I feel tightness where I thought maybe where I thought he was aiming. And um, I stopped maybe three or four times to check. Luckily, there wasn't anything there. And by the time I got my brother home and, you know, I'm, I'm home now, I remember I checked my phone. And I think this is probably the biggest part, biggest challenge for me. People saying we heard what happened. 
what are you going to do? We know where to get this. We know where we can find that. We know where we can get it. And at that time, I remember I looked at my phone and I just put it down and I just held my head and I just, I fell asleep and I thought to myself, I, I don't want to get him because if I get him, I'm going to end up in prison. I'm going to end up dead. He's going to end up dead. None of those options, or I'm going to end up on the run and none of those options to me sounded appealing. So it was now, it was now less about me and this guy and more about me and my peer group. Um, and how I tell them that I don't want to do the thing that they all expect me to do now. And I think for me, that's where my journey into, you know, from old Dwayne into new Dwayne or rediscovering the, the, the very first version of Dwayne, that little free kid that loved the outdoors came from. There's no way to go through that scenario yeah. where you're not forced to, to, to look inward, to reflect yeah. and, yeah. And, and, and actually, uh, on the backside, be grateful that, that, that it's a wake up call, man. Um, I, the, the fact that kids, and again, it's a life I didn't live, man. I, I, I didn't have a rough childhood. I, I didn't, I'm never, I'm never going to lie about that. And I, and I thank my parents for that. But the fact that kids are out there and they have to go through that shit, that just, uh, that shouldn't be happening, dude. That, that, Bro, that fucking tears me up. There is nothing cool about it. There is nothing okay about it. Nothing at all. And you know, some people might want to play it up and say, oh, I had it hard and I had it tough. And now, you know, I look at me. Bro, like if, if I could be me without that experience, if I could be bold enough without that big push, if I was brave enough to do this off my own, um, I don't know, free will without that big catalyst, I, I would be. I, I would be, but... Uh, and, you know, it's weird because people are like, oh, you're so brave to do some of the things that you do. And I'm like, oh, it's not brave. I just feel free doing it. I'm grateful that I can do it. I do it because it's a world away. It's a world away from what I, I experienced. So um, I, I wish every kid in the world didn't have, didn't, never went through it. I wish nobody went through anything like that because there are times now where this hurts this stab wound hurts it's healed it's been healed for ages there's times where i just find myself rubbing it because i feel pain there there are times where i'll you know be sleeping and be like oh god and th there isn't there isn't anything there there's nothing at all there um i don't know how it, so i find talking to you right now about this really difficult because um i have an idea of just just an idea of some of the things that you might have gone through and done and I know this pales in comparison. But so, so that's where let me let me let me, let me stop you because people say that man all the time. And yeah, there's a difference between being born into it, yeah, and not having a choice, yeah, and citing uh, a dotted line and saying I volunteer, knowing yeah. the potential outcomes or, or yeah. things that I'm going to be exposed to. I, I mean, that there is a difference, man. And I I do appreciate yeah. that, but. Yeah, I, I, I have no ground to stand on to argue at all with something like that. But I'll just say this, bro, like, my, my experience is, all I can say is, I have to use it for good, because I feel like I've had multiple shots. That one there, a guy reached into the car and went like that and managed to do it there. If he'd gone an inch or two higher, it would have been straight across the day. I, 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 I got lucky. That gun, I've, I've not seen a gun jam with two rounds or misfire with two rounds before. So bad pin, bad rounds, I don't know. But 
I got lucky. And if I'm not here to do some kind of good, then what the hell am I here for, man? So th this is what I'm having uh, trouble understanding. So you grew up in Jamaica and it sounds like you clearly remember yeah. growing up in Jamaica and the ability yeah. to run into the wilderness wherever you want. Yeah. Um, then you end up in, in an inner city environment. I'm going to assume you weren't going into nature all that often during your no. teen no. years. And you did say something that struck me that you said that inner city black youth doesn't feel like the British countryside is for them as if yeah. they, and when you said that, is it one, they don't feel like they're allowed or they belong or, or it's just, it's not their environment. So two, both of those things, all of those things, um, there was a study done by DEFRA department for, for rural affairs, uh, food and rural affairs, uh, department for environmental food and rural affairs. And they found that, ethnic minorities generally found that the countryside was not a place for them because one, they didn't know enough about it to feel comfortable out there. Two, it wasn't as accessible as, 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 they, uh, as it could be. And three, if you grew up in an area where you are aware of everything, you grew up in the city. I take young people out now, when I take them to the woods and they hear a squirrel, you know, calling, they get scared, like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, bro, it's that squirrel over there. What squirrels make sounds? When have you ever heard a squirrel in a city making this? So for me, it's all of the above. It's the fact that it's a foreign environment, man. If you've never been yeah. into the woods, one, you don't know what the rules are, what the laws are, what the, you know, what the bylaws are, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. And that can be daunting. If you come from a city where, you know, you get on the bus, you get to college or you go to school, you come back home, you know the rules of your area. I knew, I knew the rules of my area when I broke them. Do you know what I mean? There are different set of rules. It's a whole new book of rules when you go into the countryside. I, I, and I'm laughing not because I'm laughing at the kids because I, I automatically thought of Panama, the country. Yeah. Yeah. And the triple canopy jungle. And bro, yeah, yeah. you put me in the desert, you put me in the ocean, you put me in the mountains, you, other, other uh, you know, terrain. You throw me in the jungle because it was so foreign. I remember we did two weeks straight in the jungle and it was the worst two weeks of my life. Because everything wants to eat you, bite you, or it was just, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was awful, man. I know you've been in that environment. Um, so you go through this life-changing experience. You see yeah. an advertisement for uh, Ben Fogel, who's, who's now a, a good friend of yours, and uh, James Crack, yeah, yeah. saying they're going to North, uh, uh, to the North Pole. And, and I know you don't make that trip, but, yeah. bro, that seems like a pretty gigantic leap to go from – not having experience in, 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 let's be honest, Antarctica and North, uh, you know, the North Pole yeah. are two of the most austere, envir unforgiving environments. And hey, you, uh, you want to go from London and just throw yourself into that environment. All right. So first of all, Mike, let me paint a picture for you. I am desperate to get out of the environment that I'm in. Yeah. If you came to me and said, Dwayne, I'm going to take you to the ocean. I'd, I'd be like, bro, I'm not a great swimmer, but okay, let's go. Dwayne, let's go up a mountain. Okay, let's go. I was desperate to get out of that. My life was nearly taken on multiple occasions. I wanted to get out, otherwise I'd be dead or be in jail. It's as simple as that. So when I saw Ben Fogel and James Cratner, and it was, it was Antarctica they were talking about, which is a weird synergy. Oh, yes, gotcha. So they're talking about, oh, we just rolled across the Atlantic. We're now going to Antarctica. I thought, whoa, I'm desperate for something to do. And these guys are shouting about something that they're offering to somebody else to join their team. Anyway, I got turned down from that. And um, the 
group that was running that expedition, when they wrote back to me telling me I'd been turned down, I wrote back again saying, look, I really want to do it. How can I get in, get in there now? And they said, look, we're doing an expedition to the North Pole. Do you want to go? At that point, I just said, ah, whatever, bang. Yes, I want to go. And then they hit me with the two big bangers, man. They said, yeah, you need to find 23 grand. And um, how fit are you? And at the time, I was thinking, well, I can play a game of football. Or, you know, I, I reckon I'm pretty fit. I can do this. And But the biggest challenge was, where the hell do I get 23,000 pounds from? Yeah, yeah. Um, but on the flip side, you know when a door opens and you are desperate for it to open, you will find a way, man. And I remember I was going to uni at the time. And as soon as my university grant hit, I was like, bang, that's the money I'm using. I'm going to put that money down on there. Um, I was working I was working at a job at the time as well, part-time. And I remember every single time I got paid, I'd split that money in half and I would just put half of it would go into the pole. The other half would go um, to, to, to living on, I don't know, pasta or something. Um, what else did I do? I, yeah, just lots of stuff like that. I started training more. I put a backpack on, stuff it with like 10, 15 kilos and just walk. I'd walk in any direction, four or five hours walk, four or five hours back. All of these kind of things because I really wanted it. And the other thing that I remember doing was I did an extensive amount of research on the North Pole. Mm -hmm. Now, bear in mind, when I heard about it, I knew nothing other than what everyone else knew. It's at the top of the world. It's icy. Now, my extensive research amounted to about six or seven minutes on Google. And all I did was I typed in North Pole and I saw, you know, they bring up a map and a few images and animals and stuff. And I was like, yeah. I can do this. And then I typed in a few more and I kept clicking, clicking, clicking. And I saw Matthew Henson and I saw the training and I typed in, okay, how do I get up and uh, Arctic ready? How do I get up North Pole ready? I saw guys pulling tires and pulling sleds and doing all sorts of gym workouts. And I was like, right, what can I seriously manage? And I remember this was when the most embarrassing thing happened to me, man. And um, it nearly made me decide to, to, to just quit the whole idea. So anyway, again, I'm in Hackney. It's maybe 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I remember I go to a place called Hackney Marshes. It's a massive park, green, green area, green mm -hmm. field. And, stuff. and I get these tires and I'm pulling these tires. And you know, when you're working out and you start to sweat a little bit and your legs start to ache and you start feeling like you're doing something, man, I felt like I was building some muscles, all the right muscles. And I remember I went around this corner just by the canal and the scariest thing in the world scariest thing remember i'm in my 20s now scariest thing in the world happened to me i hear the laughter of young men and i'm like ah there's seven judgment. or eight of them. judgment judgment and i just I, I stopped i remember as i came around and i could see them i stopped and i thought right if i turn and go now i might be able to get away and the moment i had that thought i heard someone say who's that and i was like damn they've seen me if i leave now I, it looks weak. They might pursue me. It might be worse. Whereas if I put my chest up, hold my head up and walk straight past them, it'll be okay. Bro, I started walking towards them. I'm six foot tall. And I walked and I had my arms out and I was pulling these tires and I felt low. And as I walked towards them, they were laughing at me because of the way I looked and because of the walk and because of pulling the thing. And they called me every name. Like, I'm not going to say it on here because you just bleep out the whole yeah. next yeah, yeah, picture. Yeah, yeah. But they called me every name, man. And mm. um, 
they talked about sexuality. They called me the B word, the this word, the that word. They called me, if, if you can imagine it right now, they called me it. And I remember when I, by the time I got up to them and walked past, like I said, I'm six foot tall, bro. I felt like I was an inch and a half and I just felt so small and so deflated. And I thought to myself, bro, I'm doing this because I want people like you guys specifically to look at me and say, that guy could be me. If that guy can do it, I can do it. If he can go and do the North Pole, I can go and do. And in my head, the whole way home, I just felt so deflated, man. I just felt like, what's the point? Like, is there, is there any point? And I just felt so small to the point where I stopped training during sensible hours. I started to do my training after midnight in Clissold Park, which is a smaller park that they close. They lock the gates. I thought, right, I'll climb over the fence, chuck the tires over, and I'll do my training there where nobody will see me. Um, that's the kind of thing that I was facing. That those are some of the, that's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me, man. And it happened while I was prepping for, prepping to go and walk to the North Pole. I, I do believe there are f- a few people that have yeah. that gene where they can yeah. completely block out other people. Dwayne, yeah. I am not one of them. Yeah, like, mate, listen, hard. External judgment affects a lot of people. Now, it doesn't mean you're, you're, you're less tough. It just means you're, yeah. you're freaking human. But, yeah. bro, it, it, like, you've done a ton of these expeditions. I have not. But planning for the 777, uh, yeah. it, it, and I, I take something called, like, Delta 9 before I go to sleep. It's like a derivative uh, of THC. Um, right. and, and it does, it makes you a little euphoric. I wake up at 2.30 one morning, and it's a Friday into Saturday and I wake up, my wife can sense me like just sort of like pop up out of bed. And I'm like, I'm a fucking phony. I'm an imposter. This whole thing's going to fail. Um, and she, you know, my, my wife is great dude outside of my, my weight class, as we say in America, I'm batting outside of my weight class. Um, and she's like, Hey, yeah, (laughs) she's, uh, she's like, you're going to be okay. You've gotten this far. You've secured sponsorships. Like, She's like, just stay the path. But um, I, I, I know what you're, when you're talking about that, yeah, it still, it still affects me. And what people don't see is they see that you made it to the North Pole, which is insane. Would you, would you walk 500, 400 miles? It was, see, I did it in kilometers, about 635, 640K. Okay. It's, yeah, it's about, I think, 450 in miles. That's, that's insane. Was that all self-powered sled behind you? Every inch of the way was self-powered, pulling a sled. I, you know, I'm a rubbish skier, so 95% of it was just walking and dragging this thing through whatever whatever snow I could find. Um, frozen ocean. Every now and then you'd be walking across stuff that called ice rubble. It's basically I- just, man, it's miserable stuff. It's where the ice compacts and bends and congeals and you're, you're clambering over more than you are crossing this stuff. It's miserable, but... Bro, I, you're so right when you say stay the path because there were so many times where I felt like, what's the point, man? I remember I remember being laughed at when, you, you know, before you do something, you always imagine how people are going to react. You always think, ah, oh, that one's going to laugh at me, so I won't tell them first because they'll, they'll laugh the idea out of me. That one's going to be more supportive, but they're not going to really buy into it or encourage anyone else to. When I first came up with the idea to walk to the pole, man, I was so mindful of who my friends, how my friends would react, or the people I called friends at the time would react, that I didn't tell anyone. 
I didn't tell them. I told the local paper because I knew if it was right there in black and white, if it was printed, I'd have to go through and do it. And I remember the day it was published and I was thinking, damn, they're going to publish it tomorrow. Is it too late to take it back? Is it too late to take it back? And the very next day, the very first phone call that came through, it was a guy that I know and he's like, bro, are you climbing the North Pole? I was like, first of all, you idiot, there's no pole to climb there. It's a spot that's, a, it's like a, it's a mental place. It's, and I gave him all these excuses. That I didn't even know to explain myself, but I was so defensive because I didn't want anyone to talk the idea out of me because I knew I felt they had the power to do it. And that has been something that I've had to work hard to get over other people's power over my ideas and over what I want to achieve. What is it? Is it your personality or was it the fact that you just had to do something like, so I, I use the word outlandish and I'm not saying that in, in a disrespectful way. Yeah, but it seems like the more sensible approach, dude, would have been like, "Hey, let me go climb some uh, Arctic mountain in in South America, get some no. get some you know experience under my belt before I go for a four hundred and fifty no. mile, six hundred and fifty three no. kilometer uh, stretch to to reach the uh, the North Pole." I mean, did my that had to weigh in your mind? No, it didn't. I I had to do something big and abstract to announce that the true Dwayne, the real version of myself was here. And this is who I am. Like I had to, I think anything smaller than that. I mean, I'd done, I think I did something in the UK to run up to it called Three Peaks. Um, the Three Peaks, where it's the highest mountain in England, Scotland and Wales. And the aim yeah. is to do all yeah, three. Yeah. So I did that and I was like, yeah, this feels good. But I, I wanted to announce that I was here. I wanted anyone, any doubter to just be shut down by what was done rather than be trying to shut down or poo-poo or ridicule the idea. I wanted to wipe out any, any doubters whatsoever in one foul swoop. And I thought to myself, Arctic, North Pole, extreme conditions, distance, um, own equipment, gear under your own power, that's how you do it. Wipe them out one time, they don't have anything to say. If they wanna doubt, they can doubt over there. They won't doubt you, they won't doubt the idea, they won't doubt what you're trying to achieve. They won't doubt that it's possible more than anything else. Because the, the years and time that you spend doing the smaller mountains and doing the smaller peaks. Now, I'd advise anyone, if they want to do this, start small. Because <laughs> even though it's a big, it, you know, the success for, for this one was good. The potential for failure is as big as well. And a lot of people have tried and failed. I mean, the yes. year after I went, I think less than 10% completed it. So the room for failure is there. And the truth is when you fail at something like that, that you've yelled about and shouted about, everyone sees your failure. And sometimes that's hard to carry. Now, I, now I know I could, have, I could have handled that. But at the time I decided it was all or nothing. You keep saying, and this is just me going into the semantics. You keep saying to prove them wrong, to, to get, just yeah. crush any doubt. Did you doubt yourself going into that one? There had to Heck be yeah. self-doubt. Heck yeah. Well, remember, I come from, I come from a, a, a home life where there was no encouragement to do anything. I come from a place in Jamaica where among the poorest people live. When I looked around me in Jamaica, the most I could hope to achieve was um, maybe a little bit of farming, some mm -hmm. uh, local small farming or a taxi driver. I didn't know buses existed until I got to London. Hmm. I didn't know houses with two or three floors existed until I got to the UK. 
my school teacher in, I think it was year nine, looked at me one day while he was kicking me out of the class and said, Dwayne, the best you can hope for is a short prison sentence. So were there doubters? Yeah, there were doubters. Were there people that laughed at me and told me I'd lose fingers and toes and other bits and pieces at doing this? Yeah, there were lots of doubters. So I wanted to prove all of them wrong. I wanted to prove my maths teacher wrong. I wanted to prove everyone who supported me and thought, actually, they want more, but they don't know how to do it right as well. I wanted, you know, sometimes we focus on the negatives. There were a lot of people that said, you know what, if you can do this, you know, I, I, I'll think about what I can do. And people that said, oh, I can't do that because, and I'd say, well, bro, I bet you could. And, you know, they say, no, nah, I can't do something. Like that. I wanted to prove to them as well that they could do it. If they doubted themselves, me or just society generally, I wanted to prove that there's opportunities out there. You just have to go out there and grab them. It's, you know what you're talking about when you, when you talk like that? It's the mm -hmm. fact that there's not enough positivity in the coaches and mentors towards these young kids. Yeah. That just, just puts a seed like, hey, when a kid says, yeah, I don't think I could ride that bike. Hey, I know you can. Maybe not yeah. today, maybe not tomorrow, yeah. but you can. It, so yeah. I just had a guy named Stephen Kotler. Stephen Kotler's written like 14 books. 11 have been uh, bestsellers. He just wrote one called Nar Country, G-N-A-R, like gnarly. So at the age of 53, he taught himself to park ski. Park skiing is like, you know, with all the obstacles and you could do tricks, yeah, which yeah. is unheard of. But, um, you know, he, he did research where positivity alone not only leads statistically to better outcomes, but yes. positive people live 7.5 years longer than really? those in negativity. And I, th I found that uh, respectful. Five years. That's, that's pretty that's, cool. That's a de almost a decade. Yeah, that's, that's a good... Mate, the average person probably lives about 75, eight years. That's like 10% almost extra life that you're having. Yeah. That's what they're about. So you know going in, yeah. If you walk and you hit that point, yes. you officially become the second black person in history to, to reach the, uh, the North pole behind Matthew uh, Hansen. Do you still remember that moment or is it just a fucking blur? So uh, here's the thing, bro. I didn't know that going in. I, so your, I, your I research was really that shitty. It was seven or eight minutes on Google My and that was it. Was that rubbish. All I could tell you was that a hundred years ago to the week of me arriving there, planning to arrive there because I was originally I was planning to arrive in 2009 a hundred years ago to that date Matthew Henson got there I eventually got there a hundred and one years to the week or thereabouts uh, in 2010 but at the time I hadn't done any research into black people who'd done it before or white people or green people I just it checked out matter. the yeah. so for me it was never about the color of my skin or his skin or whoever else's skin it was just I want to do this thing who else is out there that I can look at and say, right, that's the person that closest matches my skill level or my ability or my background that I can kind of, I don't know, latch onto and use their experience to better my experience or better my outcome. And I remember when I, I actually remember when I got there, um, one of the things that I did was on the way there, I'd have all these images in my head, especially when it got really hard of, I don't know, it was stupid. It was people throwing confetti and fireworks and all these kind of things. I, I kind of just gassed myself up to think this, just keep going, doing, you know, there'll be fireworks and keep going, keep going, head up. And when I got there, I looked at this patch of snow, Mike, it looked the exact same as the patch of snow, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600 kilometers back that way. I was like, bro, is this what it was all about? And 
we then had to, what made it worse, we had to walk almost a day past it. So I think another 15 or so miles past it to a place called Isaacson Mine or Isaacson. And it was only on the way back from Isaacson that it occurred to me that, bro, you've told everyone you're doing this thing. More importantly, you told yourself you're going to do it and you've just done it. You now have no excuses ever left in life. And the whole flight home from Canada back to the UK, I think it was like a seven hour flight, six and a half, seven hour flight, wherever it was. I remember sitting there thinking, gosh, what other excuses could I make? And I remember thinking, I actually have no excuses. Is it money? No, because I didn't have 23 grand when this started. Is it fitness? No, because you weren't fit enough when this started. Was it ability? No, because when you first started, you couldn't ski. You didn't have this ability. You didn't have that ability. You couldn't camp on ice. You've never been in the ice. Is it, is it the ability to, um, to push yourself? Well, no. Is it motivation? No. Is it drive? And all these things just started falling away. And I realized that actually every single excuse that I've made up until that point was a construct. Every single excuse that I've made up to that point was a construct. I realized there were no excuses and I just didn't want to do the things that I didn't do. That was it. And everything changed when you got back. And, I mean, yeah. so now, not that this was your desired route, but you know, you've worked with the BBC, you've, you've been on multiple uh, shows you have become and, and you know, the race, it just, it doesn't fucking matter to me. The one thing about, I loved about the U S military and I saw it with the, uh, the British military as well. Nobody cares about the color of your skin or who you love. Nobody, no. nobody cares. It's, are no. you competent? Are you good human? What's your character? But yeah. you come back and yeah. for everyone in the, the Hackney area or every other inner city yeah. for all those, those young black kids, bro, it yeah. does matter to them. It matters to it them. Matters. Yeah. Yeah, it, it matters to them. But, um, and the one thing, so I do a lot of talks and presentations yep. now as yep. well, so young people especially. And, you know, when I speak to them, I say, look, when you're out there, whether it's raining, shining, cold, wet, dry, whatever it is, the weather does not care. So if you, you think the, your skin color is the thing holding you back, you're making an excuse. Now, there are some asses, assholes out there that will say, oh, well, that's a black guy. I'm not really sure about him. Mm -hmm. But if that person's your problem, well, actually, your mindset is the problem because you should see through that person, past that person, beyond that person. And the one thing I always say is, look, nature is fair. If it rains on me, it rains on you. If it's cold for me, it's cold for you. The only difference, only difference is mindset. And that's it. Now, yes, it matters to a degree because they look at me and they say, oh, actually, if he, that black guy did it. And if they, if they take strength from that and it makes them a better person, then heck yeah, take that. But that's not what I want them to get. I want them to look at the person next to them and say, well, actually, would I care if that person, yeah, yeah who is that? Is that a decent human being first and foremost? Yeah. Okay. We can kick it. That's it. Nothing else. You saw in that room, I think I was the only black person. There was at one point, I think there was maybe 70, 80 people in that room. I think on the whole camp, I was one of maybe two relatively dark colored people. You had, you'll remember him, um, Eddie. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There's Eddie there. He's a, a guy from um, New Zealand and, and me. And at no point did I feel out of place because the people were there. They were, they were just 
free thinking, decent people trying to have a good experience, trying to have a good time, get something they can go tell a story about. And bro, if that's, if the, if the whole world was like that, imagine what it would be like. I've joked, I've joked with a guy called Devon that was down there about how you will never get a collection of people like that together again. Never. You will not. It just will not happen. Uh, Devin. It was awesome. uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. He's the influencer guy, right? Influencer yeah, guy yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, him. Yeah. He actually lives I here in Austin. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does. He's got a ranch out there as well. He does some really cool stuff. Yeah. That guy was, that, you talk about positivity. That guy pisses positivity for a. Uh, he uh, it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How oh, funny. And then his, his buddy was Tyler, who basically Tyler, yeah. was the space. What's not? He does Starlink. 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 They were testing the first Starlink. Yeah. yeah. What a crew, man. But hey, hey dude, well, people people didn't notice you for the colors. Get well. First off, when you and and Ben walk in, like Shackleton, you, you, everyone's gonna look. But it's because you smiled, man. Yeah. And you were kind. Uh, as mate, simple as that. Uh, what can I say? Bro, I'm happy. You know what? The world. When you when you're in a place like that, how can you not be happy? Think about the. The, the privilege to be in a place like that. Think about yeah. what you went through to get there and everyone else must have gone through to get there. Think about the work they put in to get there. I don't care if they were a billionaire and yes, there was one or two of them there. I don't care if they work a nine to five and have saved. Whatever they did, they did. They went hard to get there. And I think when you appreciate the next person for their merits, for their character, it makes you happier about the environment you're in and it makes you a happier person within as well. No truer words, man. And, and there was just a lot of gratitude for the fact that we yeah. were there. I, you know what? I don't yeah. think we enjoyed it as much as we could because we were so no. fixated on our goal yeah. uh, of right. getting that skydive. And we, because we were always reviewing the plan, but we're, we're, we're thankful because we met a lot of good people. And, uh, and a lot of those relationships are uh, still alive. I don't know if you remember Chin. Do you remember Chin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember Chin. Yes, Chin Wu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chin from. He, he, we, oh we, man, I love. We saw yeah, him in. We, we we saw him in New York. I'll, I'll connect you guys. Um, um, so I, I want to cover two more things before we uh, we close yeah, this out. So um, one, you know, you've been recognized for the work, the the uh, the, the the Freedom of the City uh, Award for London, but you stood up We Two Foundation, in which you're yeah, taking. Yeah inner city youth to into the yeah. wilderness. I know you set up a expedition in 2022 for them to go out to, to Antarctica as many as you could take. Tell me about the impacts you see on those kids in terms of like the change. When you, when you, when you, Bro. when you throw them into that environment, when they come back, yeah. explain to me how they're different. So let me, let me, let me paint this little picture really quickly for you. We put out the word here in the UK across all media radio, TV, you name it, socials. We had over 700 people here nominate a young person. Now, every single charity was asking us, how did you do it? I was like, bro, it's not how we did it. We just put the thing on the table and people are that desperate for it. We picked out 10 young people from areas of the highest deprivation. So these are some of the poorest areas in the UK. Um, we like to showcase ourselves as perfect. We are not perfect. There's areas mm. of poverty in the UK. Mm. We picked 10 young people and then we said to them, look, you're going to Antarctica. You need to pay for it, not with money, but with some kind of local initiative to offset your carbon and to raise awareness of the need to, to be mindful of the environment. They all did something locally, which was wonderful because it got their communities behind them. 
We took these young people who were shy, who were scared. Some of them had left school for bullying. Some of them were so scared they didn't talk to us even in our interviews. They answer one word answers, couldn't look you in the eye. Some of them were so anxious that they didn't actually show up for some of their initiative initially, uh, their local initiatives initially. Um, we got them to Antarctica. We got them doing things like collecting samples for real life citizen science. They were doing cloud observations that fed into research by NASA. We were doing things like whale and leopard seal observations, penguin observations. They were collecting sea samples to use in research on board the vessel. They were out there collecting snow samples to check albedos. They were doing really cool stuff using underwater drones. They even ended by doing a presentation to 350 or 400 crew on board the ship. Wow. Now, I'm the proudest guy for every single person that we took, being my teammate, Phoebe. And um, when they came back, some of them went back onto radio and TV and went into the newspapers and told their stories that way. And the difference, if you put the two kids next to each other before and after, it's a world away from each other. Now, the best thing about that is they're going back into a community now that holds them up. They have something to lose now. So when they go back, their behavior has changed. They have self-respect. They have self-belief. They have confidence. They now know they're capable and they don't want to give that up. So they, we've seen that they, they're still doing things within their community. They've become a pillar. People go to them and ask them questions about uh, environmental issues. People go to them and ask them about how to offset certain amount of carbon. So in a way, it's not about the young person. It's about them, but it's also about their communities and doing it in the most effective way. Now, half of them have never even seen a, 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 a proper documentary. And we've picked them up and taken them all the way down to the ends of the earth, Antarctica, the most inhospitable place on the planet. And we've said, right, this place is real. This is the impact. Do some research, learn as much as you can, bring it home with you. And um, they've completely changed. Confidence is up. They've got friends for life. They, they'll all tell you now they've got friends for life. Mm. They've got that shared experience. They'll all tell you now they feel like an explorer, even though I think out of the 10 that we took, nine had never really flown before never left their area their local area before so these are the kind of people i'm talking about and to see them now having video calls and standing up for women's day and doing environmental um what do you call it environmental um conservatism uh, 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 yeah. yeah they're just basically pushing um the environmental angle making sure they're getting other people involved and engaged man so to see them standing up and being kind of a pillar it, it it's wonderful and I'm doing it again this year. Me and my teammate, we're taking another group down to uh, UG. So we're, we're trying to raise money for that now and trying to get Mike and the team down there to, to get it all sorted out. Mike McDowell? Yeah. Ah, Mike. I love that what, guy. What a guy. That, yeah, the what most, guy. The most interesting man in the world, uh, without a doubt. He, he, you've never been somewhere that that man hasn't. His story. Everywhere you there, he knows someone there, and he's left something there. Yeah, and for, and for everyone who's uh, wondering what who Dwayne and I are talking about, go to yeah. Andy Stumpf's podcast, Cleared Hot. He did one in Antarctica uh, with Mike McDowell, an Australian yeah. owns uh, Antarctica Logistics and Expeditions. One of the most interesting man uh, men in the world who has lived a very interesting yeah. life, and it's a four hour podcast. So uh, prepare. So, dude. You, you have your own series now with the seven toughest days on Nat Geo in Disney plus. Yeah. And that's big time, man. Um, yeah. I know that the sky's the limit now. 
yeah. Tell tell us about the 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 seven toughest days. Did you get to select yeah. the locations? Did you set the parameters, or was it a a, a sort of so, collaboration with Nat Geo? Yeah, it was it was it was a really good, interesting collaboration. So they kind of came to me and said, "Well, look, uh, what's your bucket list of places?" And we went through the list and we looked at what was feasible and what wasn't. And you know, we eventually settled on Kyrgyzstan, which is the most mountainous, one of the most mountainous countries in the world. Um, Gabon, which is one of the most forested countries in the world. And Oman, which is one of the most deserted countries in all the world. So there's a theme here, it's the most. And in each one, we looked at it and said, right, let's pick a route that's going to take you about seven days to do. It's going to be hard. You're going to do it using your own wits. You're going to do it using whatever you've learned through life. And oftentimes when you hear these man v nature challenges, it's because this man has had some training or some some formal training, some skills. Whereas I'm saying, bro, I remember being a kid and doing this and it worked. Or I remember being a kid in Jamaica and doing this and I tried it and it worked. Um, and I told you a minute ago that I'm quite inventive. I'm, I'm creative when it comes to, I don't know, I could tear a video player apart and make something else oftentimes. And it calls on that skill quite a lot. Um, the other thing it does as well is it calls on just that determination, man, that, that will to keep putting one foot in front of the other, that I don't know, throughout life, it's just been instilled in me more and more and more. And um, there are moments in it where I talk about my own experience, man, where I talk about being homeless yeah. and how a fire crackling away is comforting. And, you know, when I was walking the streets of London, because when I say homeless, I mean, I was homeless. I was sleeping on a train. I would walk all night so I wouldn't have to sleep um, because I was afraid I'd be beaten up or kicked or robbed or... And um, it calls on all of those experiences. And it's a, it's a true journey. It's a journey I take through these environments. And it's, um, it's my experience through these environments. It's tough. It's hard. It's the coldest. It's the harshest. It's the driest. Um, there are moments where genuinely I make mistakes. And I, I think that's what I love most about the series. People get to see me get it wrong. Mm -hmm. They see me make stupid mistakes. They, they get to see me when I, when I actually come across something that's, that's fun. And I laugh and I can't help it. But but be happy. Um, I think the series are honest. It's an honest account of who I am as a person in terms of the joys I can get and the lows I can have. And we take you through some of the most beautiful places on the planet as well. So for no other reason, if you don't want to see my face, just watch it just for the beautiful shots, man. Oh, uh, dude. I, so can I ask which one was the, the most challenging or, or, or are you blocked uh, right now from saying anything? Bro, they were all tough. Um, they were all tough for different reasons. And you know, you know when people talk about type two fun? Yeah, yes. There's type, there's a lot of type two fun in this. Looking back, Kyrgyzstan was so hard because it was hard on the crew. We had, you know, people dropping out because of altitude sickness, um, pneumonia, um, just sleep issues, um, just absolute misery. Um, the desert was hot because it got up to, you know, 50 yeah. degrees Celsius yes. plus on days. Gabon was harsh because like you said, you hate the jungle. We were out there. It was miserable. It, it damp, wet. You know, there were snakes everywhere. Like when I say snakes everywhere, I mean, we put that, that parole, which is a dugout, a cutout boat. As soon as it touched the land, bam, snake drops into the boat. We're pulling away from the land, bam, snake drops straight into the water by the boat. I'm walking through the jungle. I'm looking over there. Bam, green snake sat there about to grab me. And after you've seen one or two, every vine, every root looks like a snake. 
uh, it was it was tough. But do you know what? Some of the best times of my life in the in 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 this series, man. Do you come out a different person every single time? I think you come out a better person. Better. You come out feeling more capable. I think you come out loving the world a little bit more. I remember being in Gabon and having probably one of the most beautiful moments in my life. And I know I'm, I'm rattling on a lot no, now. Go. But um, the point. it was one of the most beautiful moments. So I had this jungle guide. His name's Jis Lane. This guy, super cool guy. He said, Dwayne, and this is how he talks. Dwayne, when you're in the jungle and you come across people, if you see them first, you know, you have to assess, are they poachers because they might want to harm you or are they you know people that live in the jungle and i said okay cool what do i do he said right what you do is you make a whooping sound announce that you're there if, if you know you feel that they might be harmless because if they're a tribe and you try and sneak past if they see you they'll assume you're there for nefarious reasons so make your presence known so i'm in the jungle now bear in mind that's all we spoke about i'm in the jungle i'm walking tired trying to get to this cave system that I know exists and I hear what sounds like women in the distance and I'm like whoa that's that's actually people so I make a whooping sound nothing whoop nothing whoop somebody whoops back I'm like bro somebody just whooped back what do I do now we didn't get that far so then eventually I make my way slowly over to these people. Don't speak. My French, my French teacher will tell you how terrible my French is. Ingabon, the you know, native language, broken French. I go over to these people, nerves, heart pounding, wondering what they're going to do. Are they going to run me off, chase me? And I'm like, bonjour, je m'appelle manger. Now, for any French speakers out there, it means my name is Hungry. <laughs> and those are the kind of genuine mistakes that I make in the series. But the way these guys treated me, they, they literally figured out that I, I meant I wanted food. They gave me patience. They took me down to a little stream, dammed this stream and showed me how to fish for mud, for fishes in the mud. And, you know, we cooked the fish and we had a more. And it was just one of the most yeah. beautiful things I've experienced. And that's in the deepest, darkest jungles in the Damn. world, man. That's, uh, that's freaking awesome, dude. That's uh, to have a very human moment with, with other people from uh, vastly yeah. different uh, uh, societies. Um, so, Dwayne, man, this hey, – well, one, thank you for the vulnerability in this discussion. And it sounds like you just displayed a lot of vulnerability in the, uh, the seven toughest days. We're going to drop all the links where people can find that on Nat Geo or, or Disney+. Plus. If you've got a sense for who Dwayne is and his character, man, uh, he was as authentic now as he was in uh, Antarctica – Please go watch the show. Uh, follow him in, uh, on social media. You're, you're going to learn as you learn during this, uh, this podcast. But, Dwayne, we finish with really two questions. First question that we give all uh, our guests, and then we chop it up and do a video because we've had some amazing guests like you on the show that leave breadcrumbs for people to implement in their own lives. Um, if there's three things that come to mind in terms of, like, your keys to success – that have led you to good outcomes the majority of the time. What are those three things you would look to one of the kids within the uh, We Too Foundation and tell them, do these three things and statistically you're going to be successful in life? Uh, success isn't something that moves quickly. It's slow and requires patience. I'd say um, look outside the circle of people that you have around you all the time. Often they can propel you. Often they can hold you back as well. That doesn't mean they can't be your friends. That doesn't mean you can't still speak to them. It just means sometimes you have to look beyond them. And think bigger, man. Be, be bold enough to think big. Think of the world. 
Um, think of the goal that you want, but think, make it bigger. If you want to go to the end of the road, imagine you want to get to the end of the, the, the end of the street, if that makes sense. So if you want to get to, you know, the end of the road, think about getting to the edge of the city and you will make the end of the road and still have some left in the tank. So think big, be patient and um, think outside your circle. Those are, are, are three great, great ones and, and very unique from, from our past guests, man. I appreciate that. Last question. And some people aren't concerned about this, man. And I get it. Um, to me, I am. Because I think of my kids when I ask this question. But yeah. when all is said and done, and let's say that's 50, 60 years from now, and in your final days, you're looking back, what would you yeah. hope your legacy is? What would you hope that your impact is on the world as you exit it? I talked to... I, I talked to my other half about this and, you know, you said it before that we're both punching above our weights. And I always say, oh, you know what? On the day of my funeral, I just want everyone to say, you know, that guy was all right. You know, I'd be happy to share a dinner with that guy. Um, I don't know. I want, I want somebody else when they're successful. I want them to just look back and just have a little moment where they nod and say, hmm. I remember the start of my journey. I saw that guy, that idiot guy, Dwayne Fields, do that thing. And that's what made me, yeah. whatever it is, just that's what made me. I'd love to be just that tiniest part of everyone's story, man. Nothing else. I don't need statues. I don't need, you know, books. And I just, just for someone say, hmm, Spark. when I saw that idiot guy, Dwayne, do that, it made me think this. That's it. I think it was uh, the Dalai Lama that said, be the candle that lights a... Uh... Uh, a thousand candles, man. Just that one spark. And uh, I couldn't agree more. That's so sick. That's so sick. Well, Dwayne, I, I can't thank Bro. you enough, man. We are, and, and uh, I know you, you stay in contact with Nick Cush, who I think the world of, and Andy yeah, Stuff. Yeah. We are going to see you again, man. And we are going to figure out a way to collaborate, whether it's the Scottish you know, uh, Highlands. We'll jump you in. We'll figure out something. But we are definitely doing an expedition with you on the other side, outside of sitting in a tent, drinking a little uh, coffee and eating that. Uh, I'm there, All right, brother. I love you and have a great day. Bro, take care. All right, man. Man.